0: You're listening to Campus Review Radio. Can you tell us uh, um, what leading learning and teaching is all about?
1: It's about giving people who are either leaders in schools or aspiring leaders in schools a very, very thorough grounding in what we know about learning and what we know about teaching. Because a lot of leadership preparation programs and, and leadership in service and so on over the years has been about management. It hasn't been about teaching and learning, but we know that where people are, what we call instructional leaders, in other words, they take an active part in the curriculum, assessing um, teachers' professional learning, all those sorts of things. Um, the effects on student learning are much greater than when they have a more of a management function. So it's really geared towards people who are... And, and when I say leaders, I think I count all teachers as being leaders because when they sit on a committee, they take a sporting group, cultural group, whatever, that's all leadership. It's, uh, it's, it's really about giving people a very thorough understanding of initially student learning um, and then teaching, um, and then associated areas like uh, forms of professional development that have the most impact. And then um, education's change strategies for schools that have the most chance of being successful. So overall, it's really about lifting student achievement um, through a strong evidence-based approach, which is something that characterises what we try and do at MGSE. I also run the Master of Instructional Leadership Program, uh, which is very close to what the content is close to what's in the book, and um, we have people from all over Australia, so, and, and they're reporting you know, really terrific gains in student achievement through a very strong evidence-based approach.
0: Would you say there's many uh, teachers and principals out there who struggle to distinguish between management and leadership?
1: I think um, a lot of people in formal leadership positions get swamped by the management and the administration, and that's a a problem, um, but they're going to have most impact where they make their prime focus teaching and learning. Um, I know the management stuff doesn't go away, but... You know, they may have to find other ways to do that uh, through other members of staff who might take on some of those roles, but they are going to have the most impact on student learning in its broader sense, I'm not just talking NAPLAN, uh, where they focus and are actively involved in, in teaching and learning in the school.
0: What causes often principals who, they may start, at, start out being leaders, but how do they fall into the trap of just being a manager? What Does your book go into that?
1: Oh, it does. I mean, it talks about the fact that they've been changing paradigms of leadership. I mean, in the 80s and 90s, school leaders were getting the message they needed to be managers. The self-managing school was seen to be the sort of holy grail and uh, there was a lot of corporate influences on schools, uh, marketing your school, Um, people were doing things like uh, MBAs and, and so forth. And it wasn't unusual at that time to find that a lot of leadership preparation courses whether they be short courses or or degrees, had very little in them about teaching and learning, which really is the core business of schools. So um, I've been involved in leadership preparation programs, short courses through to master's degrees for almost 25 years, or probably just 25 years. And um, I've been convinced uh, for much of that time that if leaders are really gonna be effective, they need a thorough understanding of teaching and learning so they can actually lead, the work of their teachers and ra- rather than the management. The management stuff has increased, um, there's no doubt about that, and schools are being overloaded with all sorts of accountability requirements, um, you know, documentation and policies and all sorts of things. And A lot of people report that as being problematic, but certainly the people we've been working with through um, the master's course I run here and also we do work through the Basto Institute, uh, we're doing work with Catholic education in Western Australia. Uh, We're working in most states and territories. We have our own network of schools and where leaders have got a good, thorough grounding in teaching and learning um, and and a really good evidence base to what they're doing, uh, they can really make an impact. We help them, for example, to determine the priorities in their school, um, to look at the evidence they need, to see how they're going at the moment, to plan, interventions, uh, to modify those if necessary, to measure the impact of their intervention. Because one of the things about, about teaching strategies in particular is that um, you know, almost everything works to some degree, but some things have much greater impact than others. So one of the things we try and help people with in the books, the first part of the book is about this, is basically knowing the things that have the greatest impact on student learning so that we can concentrate on those rather than some of the other things that have low impact and, and take time and money.
0: Being a manager and being a leader, they're both full-time jobs. And, and you did allude before that some maybe principals should delegate the management responsibilities to other members of staff. But how can a principal do that in a very under-resourced school?
1: Um, well, you, you do do that. Um, sometimes the deputy principals might fill that role. Sometimes um, government and non-government schools have people like facilities managers and so on. But, you know, the thing is, they can't delegate at all, and nor should they. But the key thing is not to be swamped by the management and administration, but to make teaching and learning their key focus. I've done a lot of research in schools, and the most effective leaders, and when I say leaders, I'm talking principals and deputies and heads of departments and so on, the most effective leaders make teaching and learning their central focus, so that when they have to do something, you know, something comes along that's mandatory, uh, either they try and ask the question, how can this assist us in improving teaching and learning, or they find a way to address it without um, that getting into that space, which is really about uh, being an instructional leader. It's a balancing act, um, and it's a difficult one, and, uh, but we know um, that where people are focusing on teaching and learning, their effects on student learning are considerably greater than those people who are essentially managers. What
0: schools are leading the way in instructional leadership?
1: We have at Melbourne a network of schools. We have around about 60 schools, primary and secondary government, non-government, we've been working with now for for three years. The first group of 20 schools is now in their third year with us. There's another group of about 20 in their second year, and there's another group in their first year. So um, you might have seen that Revolution School um, thing on the ABC. That was one of our schools, um, but there are others as well. We've had equally, you know, very impressive gains through working with people like myself and John Hattie and uh, Patrick Griffin and the other people who are involved with the, the courses. We've also had good success working through the Bastow Institute for School Leadership in Victoria. Uh, we've seen good success through our, the Master of Instructional Leadership. Uh, we've had people doing our professional certificate. Um, so these are schools from all over Australia. They're not within any one system. Um, they're schools, basically, that have volunteered to work with us in various capacities i mean we've we've had for the last two years um, over the last two years about 100 schools in western australia where we've had a principal and a leading teacher type person working with us um, over the the course of six months and they've implemented um, strategies in their schools and they've measured the impact of those so it's it's pretty impressive stuff
0: We'll move on to another point your book addresses. It takes aim at the teaching style which identifies learners as visual, auditory or kinesthetic. Why is that?
1: Uh, Look, it's one of those fads, if you like, in education that not only has not been shown to work, but it's actually been shown to cause harm. One of the things we we do often when we're trying to meet the needs of students is we try and categorise them in various ways, but the categorisation can be really problematic. Um, because it sets up thinking in the eyes of the students, their mindset, that they're good at something or they're not good at something. Now, learning styles is probably a very good example of something that's um, been a fad. Um, it's been around since the 1970s in, in various forms. There's more than 70 different models. The one you mentioned, the, vid- uh, the visual auditory and kind of aesthetic, is probably the best known, but there are heaps of these things. They don't have a strong evidence base. People have tried to um, prove that, Identifying a student's so-called learning style and then matching that to a teaching style will lead to greater learning But there's no evidence for that whatsoever Schools have wasted an awful lot of money. I've heard of schools spending fifteen twenty thousand dollars on the inventories and so on uh, to Categorize students and then supposedly you you teach those learning styles. There's no evidence these things work that they exist Um, If they exist at all, they're simply preferences. You know, you might prefer Um, to learn in a certain way, but that doesn't mean it's the most effective way. Um, Our preferences change over time and what we prefer is not always what's best for us. Uh, There's no evidence whatsoever that these things are sort of hardwired and and that you can really place people into one of these typologies with any sort of confidence. um, But they've been very, very popular. Um, A lot of uh, departments of education in their curriculum documents and some of their other documents and policies talk about learning styles. It's interesting that when we, you know, when I, I point this out to people that we've got no evidence for these things and, in fact, they cause harm, the approach is often, well, it doesn't really matter. But it does matter uh, because of the time that's wasted, the money that's wasted, but also the fact that you're using a method that is shown to be harmful, particularly the categorization that occurs where students get a view that, you know, I'm this sort of learner. I can only learn in this sort of way. I'm, I'm good at this. I'm no good at that. That categorisation is, is very, very dangerous. It's interesting, in education, we do the reverse of what we do in medicine. In medicine, you don't introduce a new drug or treatment until you've, it's been through you know, field trials, clinical trials and so on. And it's proven two things, that it does what it's supposed to do and it doesn't do any harm. It's unexpected. But in education, um, we don't have the time, the knowledge, often to be critical consumers of research so someone comes along with a shiny product, new resource, you know, it sounds okay, looks okay, makes various claims, uh, we'll, we'll take it on. Um, and then, you know, if we find that it's not doing what it's supposed to do, often we'll just keep using it. Whereas a drug that's causing harm, you know, it gets withdrawn from the market. Uh, in manufacturing, a product that's causing harm, you know, a car that is going to be dangerous or something or other, they get a, a recall method, you know, well, we should be recalling things like learning styles because not only is it a waste of time and money, uh, but it causes damage to kids.
0: And this like, a rigorous analysis is obviously why this myth has been going around schools since the 1970s.
1: Yeah, uh, it's one of the reasons for writing the book because the book is, is one of the things I do in the book, and other people have done this too, but I expose some of the myths and superstitions and folklore around teaching Um, and really look at the hard evidence base. For example, some people have a view that it's better if kids can teach themselves, just pure discovery learning. Well, we know that has a very, very low impact on student achievement. Um, There's a view that all learning should be student-centred. Well, the best teachers are actually student-centred, yes, but they're also teacher-directed in their teaching. So there's a lot of false dichotomies in education. You've either got to be about knowledge or you've got to be about activity or engagement. Um, you know, you've either got to be student-centred or teacher-directed. You know, you've got to give students a lot of control over their own learning. Now, well, we, we know that when we give students a lot of control over their own learning, um, it has a very low impact on, on their learning. We need teachers who are experts. Um, so part of uh, this business of, of writing this book is to assist people to become, if you like, I talk, call this in the book, uh, critical consumers of research so that they can actually look at the research behind a new product or a new resource or whatever, quite critically before they commit to it. Because the thing about using a bad technique is that the effects can be felt for many years as students move throughout school.
0: And obviously the the increasing administration and management workloads that teachers are getting preventing them from becoming experts because they just don't have time. Is that correct?
1: Yes. um, The administrative requirements on teachers um, are problematic. But the other thing that's problematic too is the social expectations being put on schools. So you've got the administrative requirements from departments of education, but you've also got the social expectations. So whenever a social problem arises, somebody will advocate that it goes into the school curriculum. And all these things on the surface are quite, you know, reasonable sorts of things. But whether it's, you know, we're talking about um, drugs or sex or bicycle education, um, yeah, I've seen people advocate or bomb education in other words kids are downloading recipes for bombs from the internet supposedly we should be teaching about that you know we should be teaching a whole raft of things um, on the surface they all sound reasonable but what it does it puts pressure on teachers it puts pressure on on schools particularly primary schools uh, who are often in the front line of trying to deal with some of these social problems and social issues and it detracts from if you like the core business you know that if you want to call them the basics literacy and numeracy Um, science and so forth, because, and even even a love of reading and and, and scholarship and so forth, because schools, these things keep getting added, these new perspectives keep getting added to the curriculum that people have to deal with. So there's this conflict I talk about in the book between the extras, if you like, and the basics. So you've also got the, the conflict between administration and teaching and leadership as well.